Hi, Kevin Keegan here to talk to you about my new book, My Life in Football. Published 50 years after my professional debut, it's a story of how I went from struggling to make it into the Pegler's Brassworks reserve team to winning back-to-back -back Ballon d'Ors. It's also the story about that amazing 95-96 season with Newcastle United, and then my return to the club and later departure in 2008. My Life in Football is available wherever books are sold, and of course, I would love it if you bought a copy. Golazzo, taking you back to the crazy days before football existed. 1990 and the World Cup that changed everything. For you it's all Ness and Dormer and Roger Miller dancing at the corner. But what did it mean for the Italians? And why does one commentator call it the disaster Italian football has never recovered from? Find out in today's Golazzo. It is 1990. We're wearing baggy clothing, listener, and listening to songs like Tom's Diner as we get ready for a Football World Cup. There's James Horncastle. You're how old, James? Uh, about six and a half. About six and a yeah. half. And Gab Marcotti a little bit older. Yeah, substantially older. Right. And already in love with a beautiful game. The summer I turned 17. Oh, yeah, in nice. In fact, um, I don't know if I can have to plug something, but... Yeah. You can read it for free on the internet anyway. I wrote an extremely long story about the memories about that summer and how everything changed for me, my yeah. relationship with football um, for the blizzard. It's the one where you're working on the farm and the farm wench takes you in hand exactly. and the boy becomes... Is it that one? Is it exactly. the one about the World Cup? Is the other, it's the <laughs> little one about boy can make you a man. <laughs> right. Okay. No, I read that. It's beautiful. The it's bit where you're looking up at the, at, at the sky, wishing to see stars, but it's cloudy. I felt that was somehow symbolic. 1990, things were different. And football was different. Even English football, you only got one game a week. And you were happy with that. What and, did you say about this? Yeah. In Italy, we got foreign football on television. It was just here in the little scepter dial mm. behind, in, behind your little bunker right. that, you know, there was no foreign football on television. 1990. Tele Monte Carlo showed a whole bunch of foreign football, from English football to, to Spanish football, sometimes when they wanted to punish people, German football too. Anyway, in the summer of 1990, it all changed with the glamour of Italia, Novanta. In England, where I was, a functioning national side the Gaza phenomenon and a little dash of new order transformed people's attitude towards the game. But in Italy, what did it mean? Now, Gab, you actually were there for part of the World Cup, but even going back way before that, before we even get onto the team, the decision in 1984, I think it was, to actually award Italy a massive infrastructural project like preparing for a World Cup, what did that mean? Well, I think, especially in the political context of the 80s, um, and by the way, a tiny, tiny detour. People know that Italy has an enormous national debt that we try to pay off and over time and never do, and at this point, even less likely, uh, with these people in charge. But a lot of that came from the 1980s. The 1980s obviously was, was a period of, of, of boom, of fun, of coke around the world. And the Italian economy started booming again in the 1980s, just as it done in, in the immediate post-war. But some of that was fueled by massive 
massive overspending and, as we would later discover, massive corruption. So you get this infrastructure project in Italy where we're going to build all these stadiums and upgrade train stations and whatever, and people are like, oh, yes, score. (laughs) Because, as we say in Italy, you know, paga pantalone, which means pantalone pays. Pantalone is not a real person. That's basically a euphemism for saying nobody pays. Except, right. of course, we're still paying for it now. Well, I think actually the final slice was paid off in 20... Was it 2015, 2016? Yeah. 61 million euro. See, if I had my way, right? So that was being paid every year. And this, yeah. is, this is leading to the, what, manipulite scandal, yeah. Tangentopoli. So, so two years later, you get the massive expose of the enormous bribes and, and the way that public spending and, and, and private finance have been in bed with each other. And, and and to give you an idea, basically, I think the total bill for Italia 90 was over three and a half billion euros. And I've seen that quoted as being almost 100 times more than the budget for the next World Cup, USA 94, which is just incredible. Italy in the 80s, it wasn't a great time basically to be pouring public money into vast projects. No, and you look at what some of that money was spent on, the Stadio delle Alpi, which uh, <laughs> was a, an absolute disgrace. The architect later admitted that he'd never seen a game of football. He was building this supposedly futuristic stadium, which is going to project Italy into the 21st century ahead of everyone else. And, you know, only a few years ago, it was already being demolished. Right. Delhi Alpi came in three times over budget. Mm-hmm. It included a running track so that it could fit some Coney regulations for being an athletic stadium as well. But for reasons of budget, I think, or size, they left the warm-up area out of the stadium, so it was never officially able to be used. But there was a running track, so nobody could really enjoy it as a football stadium. As much as that cost, do you know which was the most expensive item from uh, uh, San No, it wasn't. It was restructuring the Stadio Olimpico, which cost... Uh, something like 235 billion lira. Yeah, yeah. and they made it worse. <laughs> I mean, it was better without the roof. Why was Renzo Piano, the most famous Italian architect, building a 60,000-seater stadium, futuristic stadium, down in Bari? Yeah, I'm sure it had nothing to do with the fact that the Italian, head of the Italian FA at the time is from Bari, that his brother was the owner and president of Bari, and his other brother was the archbishop of Bari. I'm, I'm sure none of this <laughs> had anything to do with it. That stadium, by the way, uh. is like... and I, I don't. Renzo Piano is world-famous architect, brilliant. Blah, blah, blah. It's an exhibition of on about him yeah, in London at the but moment. It goes to show how, like, the difference between sort of, you know, the onanistic fantasies of an architect about something that looks beautiful. And that stadium in Bari looks absolutely stunning from yeah. the outside. In the same way the Stadio Olimpico, you go to a night game, you see it from, from afar, it looks like, and Stadio Olimpico is nowhere near as bad as a stadium in Bari. But, you know, it looks like a spaceship or something. But inside, it's just absurdly big. Awful sight lines. I don't even know if it's if it's the material, but it's just the, that concrete just looks so looks so cheap. We we basically built a whole bunch of of stadiums, there. including at least two stations that were virtually never used. I think one was used for the duration of the tournament. Another one, Vigna Clara, we used to pass in Rome, and mm. it's just never been opened. I don't think. Yeah, and I think another one was repurposed. Um, in 2005, because it just laid abandoned for a long time. It's one of those the... Italy complexes, Neostiense. Yeah, yeah, that was an airport terminal yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, um, but um, at the San Paolo, they added a ring to the top, which now is never open because it's a, it's kind of a public safety risk. Because when that ground was full and bouncing, 
it would create kind of mini kind of tremors around there, which would put the houses around it at risk of collapse. Brilliant. It's just so crazy. Stadium, for, for those who don't know, I mean, you might have watched uh, Liverpool play there last week and say, oh, why is there nobody in the stadium? It's because it's a Sao Paulo Stadium. They managed to create a stadium where you can't sit in a third ring because it's a health hazard to the houses around you. And you can't really sit in the first ring if you want to watch the game because it's impossible to do so because basically every seat is obstructed and right. you're several miles away from the pitch anyway. Anyway. But it the, was a great World Cup. <laughs> among the other things that were put together at vast expense was this. theme song of the World Cup for the Italians Onestate Italiana to be number one by Eduardo Benato and Gianna Nanini so that brings us on nicely to the football this World Cup got underway with uh, well a stick figure with a football for a head mm-hmm. named Chow that one right yeah. Well, at least Chow was different, yeah, and Chow yeah. was inoffensive, and was you know, it's not, it's not cu- cuddly or anything. But it no, kept no. It in keeping everybody, the certain, everybody you know. got into Chow. I think it, it was, it yeah, was as I say, like iconic. It could have been called Dribbly. Apparently, that was one of the three names, <laughs> Dribbly. That's a shame, isn't it? And then you had the team themselves, the Italian team, the host nation. Mm. I don't think I'd ever seen anything quite so glamorous as them. Nicola Berti, looking like a kind of cheeky, oversized schoolboy, six former. Berti, yeah. You had Uzenga with that hair and that futuristic silver jersey. Mm. And, the, I mean, it was it was just extraordinary. Of course, Maldini. There, I think that there was a sense, I mean, certainly from an Italian perspective, that we had this in the bag going into the tournament. And if you go back, right, the bulk of that team was legendary Italian under-21 side that famously lost the uh, the European Championships on penalties in the final with um, Spain uh, against Spain that's right it was a team of Viali, Mancini you know, Spain generally. coached by the real Luis Suarez <laughs> Luisito yeah. Suarez the, the original, original. <laughs> um, and and then obviously in 1988 Adelio Vicini had been the coach of that under 21 side he chucked Maldini in there and they played really well in that tournament and then the wheels came off in the semi-final against Russia mm. um, but, but there was a real sense of unity these guys had grown up together but already again with hindsight you kind of see how maybe some of the some of the seeds of the demise were sown in, in the way Vicini approached that World Cup. And I'll never forget this. And, 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 I, and I, I didn't realize at the time, and then it was more looking back that it struck me. It was a 22-man roster, I think, back then. Mm, yeah. Italy took, and obviously you take three goalkeepers, Italy took six strikers, okay, which might be fine if you're Brazil. It's a bit unusual if you're, if you're Italy. And then I realized... He took six strikers basically because he wanted to please everybody, right? So right. Zelio Vicini is a guy who, you know, he, he retired from playing at 35 and then he started working for the FA in a million different jobs. He was like Mr. Civil Servant, right? Mr. Mr. Democristiano, reflection of the, oh, let, let's go and reach a big compromise. And of course, he famously took, took Roberto Mancini to that World Cup because he had played Mancini and Viali together. But then obviously yeah. Mancini didn't get to play a single minute, which is another travesty. The other great thing about this team, and this might be going off on a small tangent, but it's only a small one, is I think one of the reasons this team was so loved was because it had so few Juve players in it. There wasn't a block <laughs> of Juve players. There was a lot of Samp players, a lot of Inter players, a lot of Milan players. 
um, and it felt a bit more kind of uh, datuti, no? And, and Chini, of course, was going to win the title subsequently with Viali, but they were already a very established pair. Yeah, Gemelli del Coro. They, they'd played for the national side together. I mean, Viali was the one guy everybody agreed on. He was right. a superstar and, and, and whatever, although he was carrying an injury going to the World Cup. It was Roberto Baggio, the next big thing, on his way to Juve. You could live with that. Who was fresh from causing three days of riots in, in Florence? Over exactly, that exactly. But you know, you had to include you had to include mm. Baggio. Obviously, Mancini was there for obvious reasons. You decide to bring a, a battering ram. That's fine. You brought along Aldo Serena, but then it got a little weird because he took Andrea Carnevale along, and I can only think that he took him because Andrea Carnevale played for Napoli. I, mm-hmm. I can't. I can't think of any other, you know, Chini would say stuff like, well, but he does every little thing well. He doesn't stand out in everything. I'm like, yeah, because he's he's Mr. Mediocre, right? He's also somebody who bottled himself because it's one thing to score goals for Napoli when you're playing with Maradona and Careca. It's another one when you got to go and take responsibility for yourself. Hmm. And then, of course, last minute, and the World Cup did turn out very well for him, and then his life fell apart. But he took Totoski Lachi, and again, people invariably said, ooh, you had to take a Juve player, didn't you? You know, so that kind of really set the tone, in the sense that it, it did feel like it was everybody's World Cup, as James says. But by the same token, everything was was kind of so spread out. Everything was kind of like a compromise. One of the side effects was he took Ancelotti, who obviously had had seventeen knee operations uh-huh. at that point, and I think Ancelotti played the first game, and you could see that you know there was no way he could continue, and that left Italy short of options in midfield. Right, well, sure Nicola Berti coming in though. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because <laughs> that was for me. There was, you know, I think iconic sites of that World Cup. Zenga was definitely one. Mm. Scilacci with the whole Scilacci wide-eyed business. But also, there's there's a moment of Nicola Berti l- lying on the turf and then looking up cheekily. And I think he's just been brought down for a penalty. But that that for me is the image. Him and his outsized shorts of that. Still loves a good time. I mean, again, yeah. as Gab was saying, Italy kind of go into this tournament as favourites. And again, the, the club context here is. Milan uh, European champions. Samp have won the Cup Winners' Cup. And Juventus have won the UEFA Cup beating Fiorentina. Napoli have just won the Scudetto. Yeah. So in terms of, again, the kind of range, the mm. depth there is pretty, uh, pretty incredible. Ow. Ow. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. He brought along six forwards and two of them... Not the two that were expected. Certainly not the two that started the first two games, I think. Uh, turned out to be the breakout stars of the tournament. One, not surprisingly, Roberto Baggio. And the other, as you mentioned, Totos Kilacci. Yeah, so Baggio, by the way, mm-hmm. of course, he goes on and he scores that, that ridiculous goal. And I'll never forget this. Madonna was on tour in Italy at the time. Mm-hmm. And she, she did a concert wearing Roberto Baggio's shirt. Right. I'm imagining 2022, Lady Gaga in Italy doing a concert wearing Mario Balotelli's shirt. You just keep imagining Mario Balotelli's shirt. Yeah, that's that's certainly going to (laughs) happen. Um, you don't need to update any of the names in that in that story. Uh, so, okay, those, that's what's going to happen in 22. But what were your iconic moments? The Badger goal. It's going to be the Badger goal, where Against... he dribbles past Czechs and Slovaks in the same game. Triangulazione, Badger. Badger che converge. Badger, Badger, Badger. Finta di Badger. Tira. Grandissimo gol di Badger. Grandissima impresa di Badger. Veramente bravo. That seemed to just kind of set a light, um, that tournament. And I think it really captured the imagination. Um, because, again, this was a new generation coming through. 
Um, you know, you go back to the team that had won the World Cup in 1982, the only guys who were still there were Bergami, who was extremely young there, Badezi and Viekowad. Mm. And the rest had come through the under-21s. It was a real kind of break with, with one generation. I also remember that Italy, they didn't play any World Cup qualifiers for like six years because they were holders in 82. They were then obviously hosts mm. from, 80, from 86 onwards. And so this Italy side for me felt very fresh in many respects. I mean, it was, it was an and, absurdly good And Baggio was a symbol side. of that. You got Viali and all those different forward options, but Baggio, principally, who then broke into the side to such effect. Giannini, mm-hmm. the prince, the prince. Then you had that incredible uh, back line, all Milanese back line, uh, with Zenger in goal from Inter. Then you had Huferi and and Bergomi. Ferry's a handsome guy. Yeah. And then Bergami too, and then, <laughs> yeah. and then, and then Maldini and, and Baresi were just ridiculous. Then who Ancelotti, Berti, who else? Uh, Ancelotti got Ancelotti got hurt, but yeah, no, yeah. it was it was basically it was De Napoli, Giannini, Donadoni. Yeah. So the group stages, which were nice and comfortable, as befits a host nation, the game against Austria first of all, which Scalacci sorted out after. Well, yeah, but again, again, like let's, let's they did this in typical Italians, right? Uh-huh. Nothing, ha- nothing can be easy, right? right? So they play Austria in the opening game, yeah. right? And clever clogs decides to play Andrea Carnevale, right? Uh, apparently, like to help him gain confidence, right. right? All of a sudden, our World Cup is based on on this guy, right? On on the third wheel of the Napoli attack, right? Carnevale goes on. He didn't even play that badly, but he misses like three sitters. And so Schilacci has to come on. The only reason Schilacci scored was, and if you watch this on YouTube, it's so up. The defender with like the worst timed jump, the defender's like a foot taller than him, right? Than he is, right? But he ju- he just jumps at the wrong time and he's like coming back down while Schilacci's going up. And so Schilacci somehow scores. And so the legend begins. And then uh, the second game is against USA and Viali misses a penalty. The game was resolved by Giuseppe Giannini, Il Principe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this whole tournament, for those Samp players, for mm. Mancini and Viali, they cite as one of the reasons, the disappointments of it, it's one of the reasons why they wanted to win the Scudetto, put everything into winning the Scudetto the following year. Right. Because, as Gab mentioned, Mancini could have gone to four World Cups, didn't go to three, did go to one, never got off the bench, and Viali didn't have a good World Cup in this one. And then uh, the game against the Czech Republic, where Roberto Baggio does uh, one of the all-time great World Cup goals. Which, which by the way, that mm-hmm. game was important because the Czech Republic had beaten the U.S., 5-1, right? Remember Thomas Scuravi, the, the largest man in the world doing backflips? And Italy being Italy, it was entirely possible that we would have gone and, you know, drawn that game. And then we, we would have been on the other side of the draw. We would have no longer played our games in Rome, which, as I'm sure we'll get to, turned out to be crucial. Right. Um, it was pretty big. That well, the, the next game, which was then the last 16, was against Uruguay. And you were there again. I was there, yes. I was not. I, I, I set out to watch every minute of every game of that World Cup. And I harassed my parents on me to take a flight to make sure it was an early morning flight. So, And until that point, I had managed to watch every game of that World Cup. And then uh, you know, my dad says to me, well, you won't be able to watch the Romania game. And I'm like, what? You know, like, how come? You can't stop me. Like, I'm nearly, I'm nearly of age. And... He's like, well, no, because um, we're flying to Rome and we're going to go watch Italy against Uruguay. I was like, wow. So, did you enjoy uh, it? That was my first ever World Cup game, yeah. What did you think at the Stadio Olimpico? It really, I mean, the word carnival atmosphere gets... Carnival atmosphere. Badly, yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, it get, gets badly overused. And I always had a soft spot for, for Uruguay as well. But yeah, no, I mean, it was... It was a pretty amazing experience. What 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 I remember most is that I'm used to watching Italy play where you're all insecure and terrified you're going to lose. 
even though I, th- I think, as the memory goes, it wasn't until the second half that we scored, mm-hmm. I thought to myself, this is in the bag. Like, and you felt the confidence from the people around you, which is, which was something very new to being an Italy fan because you normally always kind of expect the worst, right? But yeah, I, I was this, absolutely this buzzing. Is what I think you're going to go on to say is the Rome factor there. They felt they were playing at home there. They played every game until the semi-final there, which was played in a interesting location given the opponent. Yeah. Yeah, but it was the time of the, the magic nights of, of Rome, the Notte Magica. So past them, what was it, 1-0 against Uruguay? Yes. Same scoreline against Ireland as well. And, and that was an unreal goal, by the way, from Schilacci, the kind that like he will never score again in his The life. one against Uruguay? Yeah, because it was probably the second best goal Italy scored in that World Cup after the Baggio goal. But if you remember, he just sort of belts the ball, and it's like one of those, like, you know those, like, snooker or, or, or pool guys who, like, all they do is play the game, and, like, they can, they can do trick shots and everything? Uh-huh. Watch the trajectory that this ball takes because it looks like he just belts it, but he's got he's got that weird dip. I mean, I've watched it over and over a million times. I still don't know how he did that. Five goals he scored he in that World Cup. Gap. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe not, given that he only scored one goal for the Ita- Italian national side after that World Cup. Yeah, I mean, let's not forget that what. A year before this, he was coming off a great season, albeit in City of B with Messina. Messina. Mm. Insane. Yeah. But he had a great time at Juve, got the World Cup. And then after that, as you were kind of hinting, his trajectory changed a little bit. He had a couple of years at uh, at Inter, uh, which were blighted, in my recollection, by injury. And then he headed off as a kind of pioneer to Japan. Toto Scalacci headed off to join yeah, Yubilo Iwata. Paolo Di Cagno told me, it's, it's in his book, about... Todoskilachi is from Sicily, but, you know, there's obviously a wide range of Sicilians. He was a certain type of Sicilian. I mean, he was somebody who, it's kind of like if you ever watched the, the, the Star Trek where they have the doctor who's a hologram and he only exists, like, uh, in the medical deck and you can't, you take him out of there and he disappears. <laughs> he, he still, like, lived, wherever he was, he lived as if he was still there in, that, in, 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 in whatever area of Palermo, Zen, or wherever he was from. Pilot tells a story about this one game, like, he gets fouled. Paolo's right there. Schilacci w- and walks up to the guy who popped him. I think, I think it was Fabio Pauli of, of Bologna. And he says, he's just like, I'm going to have you shot. And Paolo's like, you know, I can, I can relate to getting angry, getting fouled. But then you say, I'll kill you or like, or whatever. But it would never cross my mind to say like, I will have you shot. And this is how Schilacci thought. Like, I don't know. He was like some kind of weird, like wild animal. I have to say, I, did you ever meet him? Yeah. I met him no. in, in Palermo years after. He was back. For, I think he was still playing for Ubalo Iwata, and he, he set up a soccer school in Palermo. But he was a really nice guy, but he did have a very distant look he, in his he, eye. He has, like, completely transformed himself. Yeah. In that off-air earlier, we were talking about how this perhaps wasn't the best-looking Italian national side. Right. I know you've got some contention on that. But Totoschilacci, I think, falls into that. Hmm. And now... He's become like this heartthrob kind of hunk who's got more hair than he ever did before. Mm. You know, wears aviators and double denim really well. Um, it and was a huge success on the Italian version of Celebrity Love Island. Yeah, I'm not yeah. surprised. Hi, Kevin Keegan here to talk to you about my new book, My Life in Football. Published 50 years after my professional debut, it's a story of how I went from struggling to make it into the Pegler's Brassworks reserve team to winning back-to-back Ballon d'Ors. It's also the story about that amazing 95-96 season with Newcastle United and then my return to the club and later departure in 2008. My Life in Football is available wherever books are sold. 
And of course, I would love it if you bought a copy. A narrow win against Ireland and into the semi-final. Now, as you mentioned, that's being held down in Naples and there's that whole thing about now you rediscover Naples Italians, but you've forgotten the rest of the year. I care more, which is how Diego Maradona was trying to whip up the home support. Successfully, but, I might add. Yeah. Again, I don't know. You, you never know if it's by design or not, but he said exactly what he needed to say, right? He reminded Neapolitans that, rightly or wrongly, there's a big north-south divide in Italy, and Neapolitans are the butt of jokes. And he said, you know, they, the country doesn't care about you. You know, and many people, especially, you know, it was the early days of the Lega Nord up north and stuff. In some ways, he had a point, right? They'd right. been mocked. The fact that Napoli had won two titles had certainly ruffled feathers elsewhere. But Diego loved them, and Diego loved them unconditionally. And so if you're a Neapolitan and you're a Napoli fan, you know, you're struck, do I side with this guy who's here, who loves me, who's brought us success and victory for, for the first time in, in my footballing memory? Or do I support these other guys who, you know, yeah, we've been a country for a little over 100 years and all they do is tell us that we're thieves and criminals and we're dirty and whatever and they mock us wherever we go. Mm. And now they want us to go and support these guys in blue and why? You know, and then they, they trot out Andrea Carnevale as if he were one of us, which he really isn't. So it, it created this doubt. And the Italian media stupidly got into it and did the whole thing about, well, you guys better go and support us. You know, oh no, we're not playing in Rome anymore. And it created, I mean, Vianney talked about how the the, the, the atmosphere in the, in the stadium felt like it was like being underwater. Right. You know, everything kind of slow moving. They had a big banner, which said Diego nei cuori, Italia nei cuori, which was Diego's in our hearts, but Italy will be in our songs and stuff. Mm hmm which didn't quite work so well as a, as a concept, but they made such a big deal out of it. And then on top of that, what happened, and this is really stupid and embarrassing, a whole bunch of people, presumably from Rome, obviously traveled to Naples to, to, to support Italy in the game. And because of what Diego had said beforehand, they started booing the Argentine anthem. And you can see Diego, you can see his, his, his mouth moving. And I'm like, great. Now we've also made this guy really, really, really angry. Right. Bad tone for the whole game. Do that you, was a bad Argentina team. Do yeah. you think it was, what Look. was the problem? Was it the stadium or was it uh, Argentina being the opponents? Argentina, who shouldn't have been in that game because they they had gone, they'd ended up in a different part of the draw to the one you would have expected by losing their opening game against Cameroon, which then meant they had to take on, on Brazil in, I think, the last 16. Mm. And there's this brilliant story of how they effectively doped Brazil out of the World Cup by passing them water bottles with Rahipnol in. Mm. Yeah. And that game also, by the way, the only reason they won that game was because Maradona pulled off one of the greatest passes you will ever see in a World Cup, and he did it with his right foot. It's this like absurd reverse pass, which is goes right into the path of of, of a sprinting Canija, since all Canija could really do until that day was was just sprint in a straight line and jump hair. up and yeah. wave his hair. At yeah. Also, yeah. I mean, there was another hand of God in this tournament by Diego, where he kept the a, a, a sure goal from the US SR going in by putting his hand out and stopping it on the line. Oh wow! I mean, they were absurdly lucky, and as Gab says, bad. You know. They were also, at the time, to put the Argentine point of view forward, because of what happened in 86 and because Maradona, I remember he had that crazy thing with the players' union and he was continuously attacking Joao Havelange and FIFA. In that World Cup, their players were constantly getting booked and sent off. And I think they had three guys suspended. I mean, they were not a good team anyway, but they had like three guys suspended for that semifinal against Italy. And then if you fast forward to what happened in the final, 
that was clearly another screw job, I think is fair to say. Surely Diego might say what happened to them in the final. But basically they were the ugly ducklings and FIFA were determined to throw them out. And they said, oh, no problem. Uh-huh. Italy's going to throw them out. Well, and every opportunity was given to Italy to do just that. Mm-hmm. What was it? Nine, nine minutes, minutes of nine minutes of time added on when it was. It's the same one, referee one. as the Roma Dundee ref. No. Oh, really? Joel Quignot, funnily enough, mm. um, Frenchman, and you know, Baggio hitting the woodwork. The the, the, the just the, the number, the sheer number of of chances and opportunity. All of a sudden, Goicochea, who again is another one, right? He shouldn't have been the goalkeeper in that World Cup. Nobody knew the hell this guy was. Neri Pumpido was a starter. Of course, he gets hurt, and then all of a sudden, this guy turns into in, in, into into the freaking Godzilla between the sticks and just starts saving everything at the wrong time in the wrong place. So Walter Zenga, by contrast, did Godzilla save. have big enough arms? I mean, he's big. I mean, he covered the goal, but like you know, do you not have like T Rex arms? Yes, like he probably did. Maybe right. that's okay. you know. All right, some, kind of, some, some sort of cross between Godzilla and a giant like octopus or something. <laughs> his counterpart, Walter Zenga, only conceded one goal in, in the entire career. tournament. In his yeah, career. felt that way. <laughs> but it, and again, but it was goal, enough. This right. goal, right? I can't remember if it was. I think it was Maradona who. Holds a pass out of, you know, Maradona, who in that game, by the way, had like four people on him the whole time, mm-hmm. right? But then because he's Maradona, he somehow like conjures up space out of nothing. He passes the ball to Olartico Echea, the left back, who's another really ordinary player, right? Completely one-footed. What does Olartico Echea do? So obviously they show him to his left. What does this guy do? No, he cuts back to his right. And for the only time in his career, he crosses the ball with his right foot. So the cross is all wonky and goes, effectively, it just goes in the wrong direction, more towards the edge of the box, where you've got Canigia and Ricardo Ferri, and you figure, okay, no problem. Canigia cannot head the ball. He's got Ricardo Ferri, who's a monster on him, right? Ricardo Ferri will just cut in front of him or whatever, right? Instead, what Canigia does is he leans backwards into Ferri, right? Which makes no sense at all why you would possibly do that. And to this day, I don't even think Kanija actually heads the ball. I think it's Kanija's hair that somehow deviates the ball. Mm. And then Diego's mind sort of going and like melting. Like, remember in, in X-Men how like Patrick Stewart has that weird machine that gives him psychic power? I think Maradona from midfield redirects the ball towards the Italy goal. But it would have been okay. It would have been okay because, because Zenga's there, right? Zenga knows what's up. It's not a, it's, it's, it's a looping backwards header, right? There's no way he can get beat from that. Except. Zenga, for, for reasons that I suppose you can justify, Zenga decides to run off his line in the general direction of Ferri and Canigia, and the ball somehow loops over his head. Canigia, who, who I don't think he never again headed a ball in his life, scores one of the most unbelievable goals and the fortuitous goals when you add up all the elements in the history of the World Cup. Mm. One and only goal that Italy conceded in that tournament yes. was 581 minutes that Zenga had gone unbeaten up until that up until that point well it went to penalties and Italy went out l'Argentina è finalista in the Coppa del Mondo sono immagini che non avremmo mai voluto commentare losing in a semi-final on penalties at home can there be anything worse well, Italy kept going out on penalties, didn't they? That yeah, but at the... home. I mean, that's got to be the worst. That, is that the worst thing you've, that's ever happened to you so, in terms of watching football, Gab? Yeah. I mean, that's when the spell was broken. You know, that, that's when... <laughs> so, okay, now... When we... you see the man behind the curtain, you know, you could like argue, in the Wizard of Oz. You could argue that, and we kind of hinted at this before, that the whole uh, splurge of preparing for the World Cup, the three billion or whatever it was that they, they spent, led 
to then Tangentopoli, kind of the defining political moment of the early 90s when a lot of the corruption was unmasked and people went to jail or shot themselves or all that stuff. Could you also argue that in football terms, well, what, what were the effects of this in football terms? James, for example, you say that Italy never recovered from this Oh, no, I mean, that was from an infrastructural point Infrastructure, of view. Infrastructure, OK. Because for years they were still paying £60 billion Euros a year. But in, that would in, have happened in, regardless of whether we'd won the World Cup right. or not. Yeah. OK, so in football terms, what happened? Mancini immediately and Viali pretty quickly, their international careers kind of petered out. Is there a case to say that Maradona was chased out of the country the following season because of all that. Because he was framed with the drug charges? Well, I don't think he was framed, <laughs> but I think it's interesting that he'd managed to exist in those conditions for so long. But then there was a change, maybe, in the way that... So some people have alleged that. Yeah. I'm not buying it for one simple reason. I love Clementine. I love conspiracies and dietrology as much as the next guy. But Napoli winning those two titles and Napoli throwing that other title away, whose feathers did it ruffle? It ruffled Milan's feathers and it ruffled Juve's feathers, who at the time were totally playing catch-up. Those are two pretty powerful entities. I think if they had the elements to go after Maradona before that, and we presume his behavior in terms of, you know, hanging out with the underworld boss and the heart-shaped jacuzzi and and the, the, the cocaine and whatnot. The prosthetic penis for the dope the test. prosthetic penis, yes. We've all had them. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so if, if all those things, had, if, if they had been aware of them uh-huh. or maybe they were if they so, could have they would have they would have done Maradona before so when he did get done in when was it March 91 is that right he was in Pisa was it Bari no. okay but so so why do you think that happened do you think it was just chance that they finally caught him after so many years of him being pretty flagrant about the way he was living well Cap hinted at this there was maybe a case of they'd not allowed it to happen for many, many years up until that point, and this time maybe it felt like it was time for basically them to allow it to happen. Right. Um, and Who? Well, I think it, it was maybe even... It, it, he was maybe becoming even difficult for Napoli to handle at that stage. Interesting. And they had a certain Gianfranco Zola coming through. Well, indeed. Of course, in other legacy terms, that World Cup introduced the, the, uh, the no-back-pass rule. That was a direct result of some of the... Football played in what was not a great World Cup in, in, in quality terms. In aesthetic terms, no, I completely agree. I Fewest think... goals, most red cards, two semifinals settled on penalties, and you know, the, the final settled by a penalty. Yeah, I, I, I think that World Cup probably gave us arguably more iconic moments than other World Cups. What but... were your iconic moments? That first game is why Gigi Buffon became a goalkeeper now. Which one? The Argentine... No, which, the Cameroon game. Cameroon yeah. game. Yeah. With that guy massing, like, like kicking lumps out of people and losing his yeah. shoe. Right. So watching then, Thomas Incono, who's just like, yeah. I, I want to be that guy. Fantastic. Rene Guita. Mm-hmm. Um, the Rijkaard spitting at Fuller. Yeah. How cool was that? Well, and also, that was And then like, Fuller running around with his greasy, yucky hair, like, pointing it, like, wanting the referee to look at that glob of phlegm in his hair. You remember that? I mean, yeah. he, looks like, he looks like a madman. I'm like... <laughs> That game was also like a, a mini Madonina because it was at San Siro and you had the Germans who had Mateus, Bremer, and so all the Germans, they ended up sitting in the inter end at San Siro and then you had the Van Basten, Reichardt and Hullet on mm. the other side sitting in the Milan end. Despite it's, the uh, German players, I'm sure that no right-minded Italian <laughs> neutral would have, would have, you know, we know who to support. <laughs> but no, but I mean, everything about that, like to the final where, that, where there's that, you know, gargantuan dive 
by who else <laughs> other than Jurgen Klinsmann on poor Carlos Monzon where he just jumps over him and then magically gets a penalty. Everything about that world, to, to Gaza's tears. Yeah. To, it's to, why, to why you have a career, James. No, no absolutely. Rene yeah. Gita. That's why I and the entire workforce of, of Sky Sports have a, have a career. The, 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 there's a whole narrative, too, involving, I think in some ways, obviously the game's global, but back then I think everybody experienced the World Cup through their own kind of regional lens. So in the same way that, you know, you go talk to, to Portuguese people about the about the 66 World Cup and how they were screwed over because the semi-final venue had changed and whatever. And whereas in the rest of the world, nobody knows about this. If you remember the England-Cameroon game, Gary Lineker you know, wins the two penalties. In Africa, this was a massive talking point for a long time because they saw it as two dives from Gary Lineker. And certainly one of them was, I think, fairly borderline. And that was part of the vast anti-African plot, right? And that became a talking point for many, many years because they really, I think that Cameroon side and Brent saying was, were they the first African team to get out of the group stage, I think. Mm. So you create all these narratives which came out of that World Cup and I think which which lasted a very, very long time. Yeah, the Platt goal. Yeah. Platty against yeah. Belgium. Mm. Well, that was... A little glimpse into many of the myriad elements that made Italian 90, so far I think still the most iconic World Cup ever, even if it wasn't the greatest aesthetically. 28 years later, Roberto Mancini is still watching Italy from the sidelines, poor chap. But now as manager, let's have a quick golazzo and then we'll talk about what's coming up for an Azzurri side in big trouble. Yeah, Italy bottom of a group featuring... Portugal and Poland. They've had a one more draw at home to Poland. They've lost 1-0 in Portugal. Wednesday night sees them take on Ukraine at the Mar- Sheva's Ukraine. Sheva's Ukraine. Mm-hmm. With Tassotti uh, on the bench, yeah. At the Luigi Ferrari Stadium in Genoa, Mancini's old um, hunting ground, stamping mm-hmm. ground. And he will be on the bench with a team for this friendly, with a proper League of Nations, whatever the Nations Cup game, Nations League game. <laughs> to go on Sunday away in Poland. Absolutely crucial at this point. His squad, it's an interesting one. How much cause for optimism does it give you, James? Look, I mean, since his um, predictable claim at the last international break that, oh, I've got no players to pick from, there's only, what, 29% of players are playing here... Yeah, you know, we've seen well, true, by the way. Exactly. He yeah. just made he just made that number up, I yeah. think, when he said twenty nine percent. We've seen Zaniola play at the Bernabeu. We've seen Luca Pellegrini make his debut and look pretty good for Roma. Mm. We've seen Chiesa doing doing really well for Fiorentina. That Milan side's packed with young Italian players. Cutrone keeps scoring. I couldn't understand what he was doing in uh, in the first international break where he, he made, what, nine changes from mm. one game to another and made all those changes for going away to Portugal, the European champions, and having a complete incoherent team. You look at the, some of the choices he's made now. He had Balotelli and Belotti in their squad last time, even though they probably maybe didn't merit to be there. He's left them out this time. He's now got loads of injuries, so he'll think, I could actually bring one of those guys back. Now I'll bring in Kevin Lasagna. What about um, Jovinko making his return? Jovinko back. Um, Achebe's back as well for the first time in two and a half years or whatever. I like the look of the team that they are reportedly going to mm. play tonight. Which With the Chiesa Insigne and, and Benedeschi. Uh, yeah. That feels quite exciting. Vedati is fit yep. for once, so we'll be in midfield with Barella, which I think I'm quite, quite mm. excited to look. You're a fan of Barella, aren't you, Gab? Best Italian midfielder in the world right now, Barella. 
place for Cagliari. Yeah, I would say yeah. on form. Yeah, without doubt. Yeah. And what you like about this guy isn't just you know he's got the, he's got the technique, like Verratti, but he's also really dynamic and aggressive, like Verratti. I'd argue in a more clever way than Verratti because he doesn't get booked every single game, <laughs> like Verratti does. You mm. know, and, and the, the problem with rope. you know in the past with Verratti, great as he is, you'd feel like the manager should have taken him aside and said, listen. I love it, but like you're not playing for Paris Saint Germain right now. There's no, you know, see that guy? That's Insigne. That's not Neymar. Mm. Okay, so like we need you to stay on the pitch because you're one of the guy. You're the only guy in midfield who can actually pass the ball. So don't go and get yourself stupidly booked and sent off like you always do. You know, playing like sort of the 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 the, the, the pocket hero. Barella doesn't do that. Barella no. knows when to leave his foot in and when not to do it. So I'm really excited for um, for that front three. Yeah, I like it too. But you know what? Are we ever going to see those three again with Mancini as manager? Probably not within the next three days. I mean, it's yeah. I, I don't so really Poland, know what his plan you, is for Poland away. You don't see him going with the uh, the three up. Well, I mean, it depends what kind of responses he gets tonight. That's if, true. If they if they rip it up, then then maybe. But yeah, that Poland game, they might have Piontek, Lewandowski. Mm-hmm. I mean, practically all those Polish players play in Geneva anyway, either for Samp and, <laughs> Samp and Geneva, so they might as well play that there. But um, I'm curious. I just I, I didn't really agree with the kind of how radically he was chopping and changing, and he just doesn't seem to realize. He seems to understand that it's a competitive <laughs> yeah. game. Exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, he's got the Klopp attitude towards the Nations League, which is fine for Klopp because he's a, he's a club manager. Uh, more problematic. If you, it's, yeah, it's not. It's not going to be funny when we get relegated, and then next year, you know, next cycle we have to go play against a bunch of Muppet teams, and then we're not going to improve. They're not going to take it seriously. We'll probably get relegated again in the European Championship qualifiers because the way they're set up, you're going to, mm-hmm. you know, you, you. It's like there's one okay team and five teams of turds, and then what do you do? You, you're playing against garbage all the time. You become garbage. Right. That's what Mancini needs to bear in mind. We okay. need to win these games. Someone put that to, to to him, and he said, "Well, one of England, Spain, and Croatia is going to get relegated." Well, that's, like, well nice. that's not. That doesn't make it any more okay. Well, yeah. I'm optimistic that they can still turn this around. We shall see. Ukraine this Wednesday evening, and then Poland coming up at the weekend. Golata will return in a week's time, when we can talk about all the exciting city and news, like two managers getting fired, including uh, Lorenzo Dana at, uh, at Kievo, but also bizarrely Davide Ballardini at Genoa, who'd had such a brilliant start to the season, to bring in a man who's twice failed and been fired by them before, and has I think a twenty-five percent win percentage with them. Uh, but that's just bizarre. But then that's just Enrico Preziosi. We'll talk more about all this and more when we return with Golazzo next week. Do hope you'll be with us, listener. For uh, the moment, let's say many, many thanks to Gabriele Marcotti and to James Horncastle. And from all of us here, on Riva Dirci. You've been listening to Galazzo, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com and make sure you check out our other podcasts this season. The Totally Football League show with Caroline Barker and the Totally Scottish Football Show with Andrew Slaven. All trains go to real places. That's the least we expect from a train, isn't it? The bare minimum. But Virgin trains also go to imaginary places. Ooh. Like alien planets and distant lands and romantic places where the rain's not annoying. It's sexy. In fact, Beam, our onboard entertainment service, is stuffed to the eyeballs with a whole host of films and TV shows. So you can give your mind a detour while your body goes straight to your destination. 
a, a real one. Virgin Trains.